Uh, The title of the message this morning is Seeing Isn't Believing. Seeing Isn't Believing. And this is, of course, speaking to the natural tendency that we have in the human heart to want to see or feel before faith, to treat uh, evidences as a prerequisite for entrusting ourselves to the Lord. And that is natural for us. No one has to teach us to do that. It is natural for us to think that we need to understand what God is doing before we can rejoice in Him. It is natural for us to to believe, well, I've got to at least be able to fathom how this could turn out for my good before I'll believe a promise like Romans 8.28, or that we have to make sure things are going to turn out okay before I can cast my anxieties on Him and my fears can be relieved and I can have peace. Or we need God to at least give us some degree of explanation for why our life looks the way it does before we can really entrust ourselves to him. These are the natural tendencies of the human heart, and they are just that. They're natural. There is nothing supernatural, nothing spiritual about believing as far as you can understand, as far as you can see, as far as you can feel. That's not faith. That is concealed unbelief. It is concealed distrust. The question for us this morning as we continue to set up this idea, does your faith require the Spirit of God? Does your faith require the grace of God, the work of God in your heart? In other words, do you have a faith that can only be explained by God's working in your life? A faith that operates as though the Word of God alone is sufficient. Before we get to John, let's turn over by way of introduction to Luke chapter 16, verse 19 and following. In what is known as the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, one of my favorite passages to go to just to demonstrate this tendency that we have to grasp for evidences and even assume that evidences, that'll create faith, that'll cause me to to believe. Look at Luke 16, verse 19. Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades he lifted up his eyes, being in torment and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom and he cried out and said father Abraham have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue for I am in agony in this flame but Abraham said child remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things but now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, there's a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. Now notice verse 27. Here's where it becomes relevant for our topic this morning. And he said, then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house for I have five brothers in order that he may warn them so that they will not come also to this place of torment. So notice in this account, it is the unbelieving man, the man who is currently in judgment. It is his request to send Lazarus back from the dead 
to warn his five brothers about this place of torment. Verse 29. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. In other words, has not the Lord already provided an abundance of revelation about judgment? Has he not given them what they need in the scriptures to avoid coming to this place? Interestingly, the rich man knows his brothers do not and will not respond to just the word of God. And so he protests, verse 30. But he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And there's the assumption in the, in the human heart. Seeing is believing. They just need proof. They just need evidence that what God said through Moses and the prophets is actually true. Verse 31, but he said to him, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. If a person will not believe the word of God, just the word of God, the sole word of God, then even a miracle, a resurrection from the dead could not bring about repentance and faith. And so the unbeliever in this story operated under the assumption that to see is to believe, while Abraham operated under the assumption the word of God is sufficient. Word of God is sufficient to warrant our complete trust. One more passage by way of introduction. Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. Just a disclaimer here. <clears throat> Most of you are aware that Pastor Nick has taught through the book of Hebrews. And if you want a helpful and more thorough treatment of these verses and this chapter, I would commend that series to you. You can find that on the website. Just cover a few highlights of that. Look at Hebrews 11, verse 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So faith is a confident certainty, a confident realization before it's ever experienced or seen. Now, granted, this is not a comprehensive treatment of faith here in verse 1. This isn't all there is to know. This doesn't talk about the origin of faith, where it comes from. Uh, it's not even talking about what faith does or even the content. What do we actually believe? But it is describing what faith is, the nature of it. And it's very clear in this passage that faith is taking God at his word. It's entrusting oneself to the word of God. And that sounds so basic and, and so simple, doesn't it? That's Faithology 101. But let me draw your attention to those two modifying terms there in verse 1. You see the hoped for there. And then at the end, not seen. So hoped for, not seen. One commentator said this. I thought this was really helpful. Faith apprehends as a real fact what is not revealed to the senses. It rests on that fact. It acts upon it. It's upheld by it in the face of all that seems to contradict it. Faith is real seeing. Pastor John Anderson also provides this definition of faith. An enduring trust in God against all sensible odds so that what he said is more substantial than what is seen. So yeah, faith is taking God at his word, but it's taking God at his word in the face of all that seems to contradict it. Our feelings, our experiences, our sight, our wisdom, our opinions, our approval or lack thereof of God's providence in our life. Skip down to Hebrews 11, verse 6. And without faith, it is impossible 
to please him without faith. What kind of faith? An enduring trust in God against all sensible odds so that what he said is more real, more substantial than what I'm experiencing, what I see, what I feel. That faith, without faith, it's impossible to please God. That means no matter how great one's devotional life, their commitment to the church, their evangelism, their missionary work, any activity, any Christian activity, their baptism, taking of the Lord's Supper, anything like that without faith doesn't please God. Notice the rest of verse 6. For he who comes to God must believe that he is. He is the ultimate, supreme reality and that he's a rewarder. He will a rewarder of those who seek him. He will come through on every promise. Pastor Jerry Ragg wrote this of that last part in verse 6. Thus, we are pleasing to God only when we humbly confess his sovereign existence and entrust ourselves to his gracious presence. That is what makes faith so important. It yields to God's authority. He is and rests in God's grace. He's a rewarder. Jerry goes on to say, believing God when nothing else in life feels right or makes sense is the very heart of spiritual maturity. This is what all the following examples in Hebrews 11 give us. It's commonly referred to as the, the hall of faith. God's people throughout redemptive history trusted his word. But what do they all have in common? Against sensible odds, against what made sense to them. The whole chapter is an exposition on verse 1. Let's just highlight a few of them. Verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Noah prepared an ark, but we don't often think about what was that process like for him. 55 to 75 years That's the estimate for how long it took him. No flood, no judgment, just looking to what was not seen, the promise of God. All he had was the word of God to trust. Verse 11, by faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, there was born even of one man and him as good as dead at that. Many descendants as the stars of heaven in number and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. Sarah believed God against what made sense to her. Verse 17, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, in Isaac your descendants shall be called. He considered God as able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type the very child through whom God had promised to bless Abraham and make him into a great nation. Abraham is called by that same God to sacrifice him. That didn't make sense to him. He certainly didn't feel joyful and delightful as he picked up the knife and was willing to go through with it because he trusted the word of God. Does your faith operate like that? Does it require the Spirit of God, something supernatural? Or is your faith natural? Is it a faith that goes as far as you can feel, as far as you can see, as far as your experiences go? 
Is it a faith that rises or falls based on your understanding or even your approval of what God is doing? We're going to turn our attention now to the Gospel of John, chapter 4, verses 46 to 54. John 4, 46 to 54, and we're going to see an individual converted from natural faith to actual faith. In fact, this individual is going to prove to be an exception of true faith in a context of faithless enthusiasm about Jesus and his ministry. So if you're a note taker, that's the title of this section, an exception of true faith in a context of faithless enthusiasm. And let's first look at the inconspicuous setting of where this all takes place. The inconspicuous setting in verse 46. Therefore, he, that's Jesus, came again to Cana of Galilee where he had made the water wine. So therefore, he's coming again into Cana. Therefore, based on what? Well, we've got to back up. Back up to verse 39. From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all the things that I have done. So the Samaritans came to Jesus. They were asking him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Skip ahead to 43. After the two days, he went forth from there into Galilee, for Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. All right, so his own country was not Samaria, where he had just experienced a mini revival, the village in Samaria, where the whole village believed in him. Galilee was his own country. That was his native land where Nazareth was located. So he departs where he was received, where he was believed, and goes to Galilee where he testified, I'm not going to be honored. I'm not going to be received there. And that seems backward to me, probably to you as well. Why would he leave Samaria where everyone's believing in him and trusting in him and then say, we're going to go to the area where I have no honor. I'm not going to be received. Why would he do that? Well, he's been on a mission to Galilee ever since he was in Jerusalem. He had to get out of Jerusalem because the the beginning of chapter 4 talks about how the Pharisees were hearing how Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John. John had a huge ministry. That means Jesus was now even getting bigger. His reputation was spreading. He was drawing the attention of the leaders, and he didn't want his ministry cut short prematurely. So he had to get out of there, get out of Jerusalem and the Judean countryside. And he knew, if I go to Galilee, in and around my hometown, my own land, my ministry will be far away from Jerusalem and it won't explode. I won't get a lot of converts. I'll I'll be able to continue to do my ministry and my miracles without drawing that that attention. But now it gets really confusing because notice verse 45. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans, and we would expect it to say, rejected him. Didn't give him any honor. But it says they received him. He does get the favorable response. Right after he testifies, a prophet will not have any honor in his own homeland. What is going on here? Is John forgetting what he writes just one verse earlier? Does he need a grammar lesson on his conjunctions? Well, notice how he qualifies the type of reception that he got in Galilee. Having seen All the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they themselves also went to the feast. So they received him, having seen signs and wonders. And if you remember a few months ago, we looked at John 2, 23. Look back back at John 2, 23. 
Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. But did they really believe? But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. He knew artificial faith. He knew faith that rests on the show, the miracles, the signs, the wonders, the faith that was in those things and not in him. So, yes, they believed, but it was actually unbelief. It was a form of rejection that presents itself of as, oh, we like having you around. We like your ministry. Yeah, we believe. And so it was faithless enthusiasm, the, the belief of excitement and amazement at miracles, not an actual trust in the person and work of Christ. And so back to our passage in chapter 4, these Galileans, this is northern Israel, they are Jews. They would make the trip to Jerusalem for that Passover, and that means they were there. They observed the signs in John 2. They were part of the many who believed. They received him. They welcomed him, but not as the Messiah, not as the Savior of the world like the Samaritans, but rather the exciting show that came into town. They received him excitedly, admirably, but faithlessly. So John's writing with irony in verse 45. They received him, in quotes. It's back to chapter 4, verse 46 now as we come to the inconspicuous setting. This is why he's going there, but why is it an inconspicuous setting? Well, he came again to Cana of Galilee where he had made the water wine. The last time he was in this region, chapter 2, at the wedding where he performed his first sign, his first miracle. And it's an interesting choice by Jesus to perform these signs in Cana. You really can't get more insignificant. Only John mentions Cana. Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't even mention this region. It was smaller and less significant than Nazareth, which was already a throwaway village. Can anything good come from Nazareth? It already had that reputation. Well, it was even less than Nazareth. Nazareth had around 500 people in it. Cana, 10 miles north, had dozens living in this village. So Jesus performs his first miracle there, and then his second major sign, he comes back to, to that same inconspicuous place. Let's move on now, secondly, and look at the desperate situation, the desperate situation. Middle of verse 46. And there was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. Royal official, that means this is one of the king's officers. He would have been following a Herodian king. Herod is the family name of a dynasty during that time. There, there's several Herods in the New Testament, but you have uh, all of them are horrible, wicked rulers. Herod the Great was also called King of the Jews. That's the Herod that's trying to kill baby Jesus in Matthew 2. Well, he dies. His kingdom is divided three ways. One of those regions went to Herod's son named Herod Antipas. And he was the ruler over this region of Galilee. So this is a royal official connected to Herod Antipas. Why do I bring out that detail? Well, for starters, it demonstrates that Christ is impartial in his saving work. This man's going to go on to be converted in this passage. And that means that it's demonstrating Christ saves out of every rank, class, condition, Jew, Gentile, poor, wealthy, noble, lowly. Christ makes no distinctions. But secondly, a royal official would mean one. He's got access to resources. 
physicians that can help. And they haven't been able to help. He has resources, connections, wealth, but he's desperate. Nothing's been able to help in this situation. The text says that his son was sick at Capernaum. That was a a town about 18 miles or so from Cana, bordering the Sea of Galilee on the north side. Verse 47, when he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and was imploring him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. All right, so the official makes the journey uphill from from Capernaum uphill to Cana, and he wants Jesus to come down to sea level at the Sea of Galilee where Capernaum is. What does that tell us? He had a reputation. Jesus had that reputation of a miracle worker. The Lord had the reputation as one, he can help my son. And so the royal official finds Jesus and was imploring him. That's an intense word, uh, repeatedly pleading, urgently requesting, come to Capernaum to heal my son. His son was at the point of death, and Jesus represents the last glimmer of hope. It's a scene of absolute desperation. This royal official, at least at this point in the narrative, is potentially a foxhole convert, a foxhole convert. You may have heard that term foxhole, faith, foxhole religion, foxhole conversion. I was reading up on one resource this week, and that term was maybe coined uh, originally by the U.S. Army as early as World War I to describe how German soldiers were digging holes in the ground to provide shelter uh, and safety from the bullets that were coming at them. These burrows in the ground, only big enough for one or two soldiers, became known as foxholes because they were basically emulating what a fox does, burrows into the ground for shelter. Many times in these foxholes, the soldiers would find themselves in severe, life-threatening situations, and the phrase, dig or die, came to be used. And because men often found themselves on death's door, thinking that death was imminent, they would cry out to God in these foxholes to deliver them from death, often including an oath. Maybe you did something like this in your life. I know I did before I was a Christian. God, if you'll get me out of this situation, I will trust you and follow you the rest of my life. Not not sincerely, by the way, (laughs) but it's a desperate oath and a desperate time. Well, what are we saying there in those oaths? If If you come through, you provide a work. If I can see, then I'll believe. I'll follow you. You demonstrate yourself to me by delivering me from this situation, then I'll trust you. The implication is you haven't done enough yet. This is where the saying came about, there are no atheists in foxholes. Because in times of severe distress, even the most hardened sinner is willing to temporarily stop suppressing the truth and cry out to a God they hate to deliver them. Well, as this man approaches Jesus, he is at the very least having a foxhole crisis of faith. And Jesus is going to challenge him on it. He's going to draw attention to it. He's going to put it on the table. So we've seen the inconspicuous location. We've seen the desperate situation. Let's move thirdly now to the general allegation in verse 48. So Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. Notice the plural. He's indicting the whole crowd. And the royal officials in the crowd, he's included, but it's the whole crowd. Unless you all see signs and wonders, you all will not 
believe. So this statement reinforces the idea of what we saw in verse 45. The Galileans received him, but it was a faithless reception. They were interested in him merely because of his wonders, his signs and wonders. Their faith was dependent on those signs and wonders. They were wanting to see in order to believe. And so he is in essence saying to them and to this individual, unless I conform myself to your desires, unless I provide a miracle on your terms, you won't believe. You're wanting me to demonstrate my work before you'll entrust yourself, before you entrust your child's life into my hands. Well, he's just like a foxhole soldier here. Bullets flying around within inches of you. You're desperate. You're telling me you're willing to believe as long as I get you out of this situation. And you say, well, how do you know that's what this royal official is doing? Is he really that unbelieving right here? Well, how did Jesus respond to him? Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. So already Jesus is suspecting something, but more so, notice again the content of his request. Middle of verse 47. He was imploring him to come down and heal his son. Skip ahead to 49. The royal official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Notice how he's dictating how the Lord should work, telling the Lord how to act, what to do. He repeats it twice, come down, come down. What's the assumption? You've got to be physically present at my house in order to do this. Jesus' presence at his house was indispensable in his mind. Notice again, verse 49, you also got to come down before the child dies. Why? After he dies, there's no hope. It's natural faith. It's limiting, limiting Jesus and his work. It's a faith that goes as far as I can tell how God should work, as far as I could imagine how God might work in this scenario. You ever come to the Lord in prayer, but you you dictate the terms? In what I would call faithless wisdom, you, you give him terms for how he needs to act? What does that sound like? Here's what I need, Lord. Here's how I need you to do it. And oh, by the way, here's when you need to do it by. And then when our terms are not granted, we may even accuse him of not caring, not being faithful, not coming through on his word. When in reality, what happened? He hasn't come through on our word. That's faithless because it's limiting God to your own fallen and finite wisdom. You're still having to see in order to believe. Here's what I need. Here's how I need you to do it. Here's when you need to do it by. That's what the royal official's doing. Look at this. Here's what I need healing for my son. How I need it, come down. Make that 18-mile journey, come down to my house when I need it, before my child dies. He's coming to the Lord, but he's still maintaining that illusion of control. He's wanting to be in charge. It's his own wisdom informing the, the request, but what does the Lord want? Actual faith. The Lord is saying, I'm going to be left to fulfill my promises my way. And that's often going to go against your senses. It's going to go against how you think or imagine I would work in this situation. Unless you see me come down to your house, touch your boy and heal him, you won't believe. That's what he's basically saying to him. Now, before we continue in this narrative, let's pause. Look over at Matthew 8 because we're going to see a very similar situation. And now you can see here's what actual faith looks like. 
in the same situation. It even occurs in the same town as where the royal official lived, Capernaum. Chapter, uh, Matthew 8, verse 5. And when Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, imploring him and saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion said, Lord, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I'm also a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following, truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. There's faith. Notice the humility. I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. But then notice how this word of God was sufficient. Middle of verse 8 again. Just say the word. Just say the word. And my servant will be healed. And Jesus responds differently to him, doesn't he? He doesn't say, unless you, be- unless you see signs and wonders, you won't believe. Instead, how does Jesus respond? He marvels at his faith. So back to our passage. Chapter 4, verse 48. This allegation to the crowd, to the royal official, also serves as a challenge to the royal official. How is he going to respond? The royal official said, verse 49, said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. He's still not there yet. (laughs) He's not discrediting. He's not angry. But he still hasn't come to trust the word yet. I need you to do something before my child dies. He's just appealing to him out of his own distress and desperation. Well, that brings us fourthly now to the miraculous transformation. The miraculous transformation. Verse 50. Jesus said to him, go, your son lives. Not future, your son will live, but go, your son lives. He's been restored presently. He's been restored to a state of health and living. So what's that mean? Between verse 49 and verse 50, Jesus miraculously, instantaneously, completely healed the boy. And we might add, despite the royal official's weak faith, or even absent faith, despite his dictations, his his ignorance, at best he has weak faith. I say that just so we can... Note a bit of a sidebar here and and, and consider this account in light of the false teaching today that says miraculous healings are dependent on the faith of the one being healed. If you're afflicted, if you're ill, the reason you're not being healed is you don't have enough faith. Well, you can look at this as one of many passages that would teach otherwise. Many individuals throughout Scripture were miraculously healed by God in the absence of faith, even as they're angry at the process. I mean, see Naaman in 2 Kings 5. He didn't have faith before he was healed. Notice in this account, the child who's healed, he didn't believe until verse 53. And the only faith the royal officials had so far has been weak at best. He's indicted along with the crowd as having to see in order to believe. And so Jesus didn't heal the boy because of the boy's faith. It was non-existent or the father's faith, which was weak at best. This was grace powerful, unmerited favor of God, a free, gracious gift. But the way in which he healed this boy was going to be a test. 
for his father. It would reveal which pathway his father would go down in his heart. Would he remain with his fellow Galileans, having to see in order to believe, or would he prove to be the exception where the word of God is enough? This is the fork in the road in the narrative, the pivotal point, middle of verse 50. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started off. What did Jesus just say to him? Go. So he gives him direction. Go. Your son lives. How does he respond? He believes and he obeys. He believed the word and then he starts off toward his house. Very important. Notice what he stopped doing. Pleading with Jesus. No, no, come down to my house. You've got to come down. Protesting in the way he would work. Also very importantly, notice what he doesn't do. All right, I'll go see if it's true. I'll go see if it really happened. No, there's no pleading, no protesting, and he doesn't leave in a state of doubt or uncertainty. He believed the word Jesus spoke and obeyed his directive. He started heading home. There's saving faith. Saving faith, which rests not in the works of Christ, as in signs and wonders, but in the word of Christ. Put yourself in the Father's shoes here and think about how much even more remarkable this is. Once he departs and leaves, that's it. This is the last-ditch effort, the last chance his son has right here. He's not gonna, he has no reason to assume he's ever going to see Jesus again. Uh, he doesn't know where Jesus is going to be after this. But secondly, remember how urgent the timeline is. My son's at the point of death. Once he departs and heads on that 18-mile journey home, that's it. He had zero evidence. He had nothing to see. Nothing to convince him that a miracle happened at his house. All he had was the word, and he believed. That's faith. It's a miraculous transformation for two reasons. There's two miracles that happened here. One, Jesus delivered a boy from certain and imminent death. He restored physical life miraculously. The other miracle, regeneration and faith in the heart of the royal official. He accepts his word and departs without seeing, without understanding how it could be possible against what he thought should happen, Jesus coming down to his house. Charles Spurgeon said this, Remember, you dishonor God when you want any other evidence except his naked word. And he goes on to say, What would you, dear friends, think of this in your own case? You promise your child a present and he wants evidences. You tell him that you love him and he wants you to call someone else to bear witness to it. Shame on your naughty child or else there must be something ill about yourself. It's a helpful illustration, right? Imagine a parent intending to bless their child with a substantial financial gift and they meet with their child and say, I'm giving you $50,000. I transferred it into your account today and the child responds, prove it. Show me the receipt. In fact, let's go to the bank. I want to see the money in the account. If that's the response of the child, there's only two options. As Spurgeon noted, shame on your naughty child or else there's something ill about you. Maybe the child just so self-entitled and covetous that, that even in the face of such generosity from their parent, they callously demand proof. That'd be one option. Or maybe the child's acting reasonably because the parent has habitually made promises that they haven't come through on. 
That might be true in human relationships, but we treat the Lord like that. And when we do, we're dishonoring him. John Calvin writes this, consider how much of concealed distrust there is in us, or at least how small and limited our faith is. Not so with this royal official, at least in this moment, in verse 50. This is the miraculous transformation. That brings us fifthly now to a redemptive confirmation, a redemptive confirmation, verses 51 to 53. Verse 51, as he was now going down, his slaves met him, saying that his son was living. So he's going down back, to, back toward Capernaum at sea level. His slaves are making the trip up to go find him. About an 18-mile route, they met somewhere on that journey. What's interesting is they're coming to find him, and what didn't they know? That he had interacted with Jesus. They knew nothing of that. They didn't know about that interaction. They were at home, and, all, and they just watched the child spring back to life. And so they're coming now to report to their superior, your son is better. Why is that important? They're unbiased witnesses. They're unbiased. They're just coming to report the good news. Verse 52, so he inquired of them the hour when he began to get better. And then they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew it was at that hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives. What's happening there? The word of Christ was confirmed in his personal experience. That's what evidences and our experiences do in the Christian life for our faith. They confirm what we already know is true. They confirm what we believe. They don't create our faith, but they strengthen it and encourage us. It's exactly what we see next. Notice in verse 53, after the confirmation, and he himself believed in his whole household. And you say, wait a minute, he did believe as a result of seeing. Well, obviously, he's not going to be unbelieving now. Of course he's going to believe here. But remember, Technically, he hadn't seen anything yet. He's just believing the word of his servants at this point. But this is what we would expect. He, he had already believed, verse 50, that's initial faith. He believed the word. This is now the strengthening of faith one receives when the word of God is proven in our experience. He believed a specific promise with no evidence in verse 50. Now he believes in Christ himself. There's no promise he's believing here. He's just believing in Christ. How many times do we read of the Lord calling Israel in the Old Testament, remember how I delivered you. Remember this, remember this. How is that functioning? To encourage them. Look back on God's faithfulness, coming through on his promises time and time again. Strengthens and encourages faith. Verse 53, he himself believed and his whole household, his children, wife, the servants, the whole household. Look at the purposes of God in suffering. It's certainly not a point that's a main point of this passage, but an implication here. Notice this. One child in the home struck with life-threatening illness on the pathway to death. That becomes the occasion in which a desperate father rushes to go find Jesus. By the end of the narrative, the entire household has eternal life. Without that suffering child, the father would not have gone and found Jesus and they'd still be dead in their sins. It's often how the Lord uses suffering. It becomes the occasion 
through which he blesses us spiritually. Then a concluding comment by John in verse 54. This is again a second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. A second sign. Well, there were many signs he had already done by this point in his ministry. We read about that in John 2, 23. What John's referring to here is the second sign after he had left that region. The second sign in Galilee. What was the first sign? Look back at chapter 2. Verses 1 through 11, the transformation of the water into wine at the wedding in Cana. Verse 11, this beginning of his signs, there's his first sign. Jesus did in Cana of Galilee, manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Notice how John uses that word signs and not miracles in his gospel. They're the same act. He's referring to the same event. But what's John doing by using that word signs? He's pointing to the significance of the miracle. He wants to point to a particular truth that that miracle is conveying. What was it with the transformation of water into wine? Well, remember the, the water was in the, these big barrels that were used for Jewish purification, the, the Jewish cleansing rituals, demonstrating what then? When he transformed that water into wine, only Christ can provide true cleansing from sin. Jewish rituals can't cleanse or transform So in our passage today now, this is the second sign. Second sign, raising this boy to life. So what what truth is that portraying about Christ? Well, go back to chapter 4 for a minute. And there's a word that keeps getting repeated here. Verse 50, your son lives. Verse 51, saying that his son was living. Verse 53, your son lives lives, living, lives. You see that repetition. What's it demonstrating? Christ's power over death. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I bring life where there is death. And in this account, he brought spiritual life where there was spiritual death and physical life where there was physical death. Where are you on this spectrum of faith? Where are you? Are you part of the group of faithless enthusiasts where you have, you have confused excitement for Christ with belief in Christ? Where as long as your emotions are stirred, as long as you're entertained, as long as you feel something, you'll hang around the truth and God's people? Well, that's the Galileans. Or maybe you're part of the group of foxhole converts, foxhole religion. Those who only come around the church and cry out to God when they are in dire straits, when something horrible has happened, and they cry out to God to rescue them. But other than that, they largely ignore him. Foxhole converts. Or are you in this group that the royal official is in? Faith, actual believers. Take God at his word. It might be weak. (laughs) It is imperfect, but it's there. It's there. You have an enduring trust in God against all sensible odds so that what he said is more substantial than what's seen, felt, or experienced. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this challenging and encouraging account that we studied this morning. We know that the faith to take you at your word is a gift that you give to your people. And for those who have this gift, strengthen it because we are often weak in it. 
For those who don't have it, we ask that you'd graciously grant it to them because the natural man is unable and unwilling to believe. And in the areas in our lives that are the most difficult for us to trust you, help us to be diligent in those areas to believe your word when that's all we have to go on. And we know that when we do that, you are glorified. You're honored and you're pleased, as Hebrews 11:6 6 says. You're pleased in those cases when we simply take you at your word and anticipate you coming through on your promises. And we ask these things in Christ's name, amen.